Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, we've already prayed during this service, but we ask now as you open up your word, make it clear to us, help us to see clearly, just as sin entered this world through one man, that fall needs to be investigated some more here this morning. Help us to see how it happened so it won't happen to us. Help us to see that as we look to Jesus, we can be restored into his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Simply put, evil is the undoing of oneness. And as I think of different ways in our society that we value oneness, one of them is marriage, wouldn't you say? And there I was at Milo Academy in 2000. I was an assistant cook there at the academy working with my, uh, my wife's, my to-be wife's uncle. And as I was working there and living on 123 Daisy Lane, I had one thing in mind, and that was that eventually my fiancé would become my wife and she would come over to 123 Daisy Lane, and so I was doing whatever I could to prepare. Now, what that meant was I was accepting secondhand and thirdhand furniture, partial Civil War sets, um, whatever I could get my hands on just to set up this household. And I was making about $900 a month at the time, taking, it home, taking about $900 a month. That was after rent was taken away. So I had a little bit of money to work with, and I was planning how can we start our household together and have this marriage get off to a good start. And meanwhile, do you think that she was doing some planning? How many of you guys think that she was doing some planning? Yeah, I mean, her list was longer than mine. She had that whole wedding to think about, and she had all these different details to think about, and, and the invitations to go out, all of that good stuff, and the order of service. And I was, meanwhile, writing a poem for the wedding and trying to get some things done, but she was also preparing. And so as I thought about that, the question comes to mind, why do we go to so much effort for the commitment of marriage? I mean, our marriage was frugal compared to most marriage ceremonies. Our beginnings were probably, in the day that we got married, considered very frugal as well. Today, you got people who spend hmm, thousands, <laughs> I don't know if I want to go to the million range, but just all of these dollars for a marriage ceremony. And yet in the back of their mind is that whole 50% divorce rate thing. And yet this commitment to marriage, the, the lengths that people go to to unite in marriage, people go to all kinds of lengths. And deep down there's this longing for oneness. Why is there that longing for oneness? That relationship with somebody else. Well, last time we discovered we're in need of friendships, that there is this desire to be close to someone because we're made in the image of God. That's the quick answer. But as we look at how God made our world, we're going to find that it's clear. It's clear that we are made in his image and that he prepared the world and the garden for this couple, this couple we call Adam and Eve. So we're going to recap here. Creation last week, we learned the weekly cycle was established. Everything needed for life was established. Perfect relationships were established. Friendship in the truest sense of the word was established. Oneness with God was established. And it says in Genesis 3, verse 8, they heard the voice of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's true oneness. Oneness with God. Oneness, we're going to find with the human race, complete oneness at creation. And so Genesis 2, we find the capstone of creation. Whereas chapter 1, we get into the, the general overview there. We find in chapter 2, 
more details. Not a second creation story. How do I know that? Because it says, and the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created to make. And so that's the modern King James Version. But notice the ands. And, and, and. What is that telling us? It's a conjunction, right? Everybody knows a conjunction ties something previous to what you're saying then, right? And so it's tying chapter 2 to chapter 1. This really should be the, the, the chapter marker right here. Uh, we know that human beings assign those chapter markers, but this and ties together the previous verses in chapter 1 to this chapter. And so we know that creation didn't end with the creation of man. It actually ended with the seventh day. And so chapter 2 begins with that statement there. It goes on, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. Why do we need to know the generations of the heavens and the earth? That's a genealogical formula. That, that the heavens and the earth have generations? Well, it's talking specifically about our world. And you find in the book of Genesis, when it uses that phrase, these are the generations, or these are the descendants, it's telling you that this is a genealogy of somebody's family. This is how the world began. This is how life began in our world. And just like the genealogies are real throughout the rest of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, this is a literal account. For instance, if you say, here's the generations of Isaac, and it lists off their descendants there. It's a summary statement, and then it gives you more detail. It's the same thing that's happening here. We're to take Genesis 1 and 2 literally. And it says, and every shrub of the field was not yet on earth. Well, wait a minute. What's that talking about? I thought he already made plants. Well, if you know some of the Hebrew here, you'll recognize it's talking not about the perfect plants in chapter 1, but it's talking about some of these noxious plants that eventually appear and cause thorns in people's Shoe and people's sandals causing troubles in the world. Eventually, that same word, those same words are used later on. And every plant of the field had not yet sprung up, for Jehovah God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. And so you have a deficiency here, do you not? Something's lacking. It's telling us how do we get all these weird things we see in our world, especially we're out here in the middle of the desert, Moses, and we have these different plants out here in the desert. How do we get all of those things anyway? Moses is clear. He's saying that was not exactly how God made it in the beginning. He made all of these perfect things, including the garden. And this is what we call repetition and enlargement. Something is lacking, and as you tell a story, and you leave a detail out, and you come back to it later on, what's the, what's the, what's the role of that? To emphasize something. Now he's taking the story from life in general, and he's going to go ahead and point you to the real capstone of creation. It says, Jehovah God formed or molded man of the dust of the ground of the, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And Jehovah God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so this Lord, and there it is in the Hebrew up there, just four letters there, some of you have Lord, some of you have Yahweh. We don't know exactly, exactly how to pronounce it. These people put Jehovah God. But at any rate, that God becomes personally involved with the creation of mankind. Whereas before he speaks, 
And according to the next part of this chapter, he forms animal kind. He forms mankind. And the ingredients, we know about those. Dust and breath equals a living being. Not going to belabor that, but fresh from the Creator's hands comes humankind. And out of the ground, Jehovah God caused to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We'll come back to that later on because that same expression is used in the fall of mankind. The tree of life also was in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it was divided and became four heads. And it lists the first head there. And so you find there's these two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they are both in the middle of the garden there. Where does God walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? They're in the garden, right? So you've got these two trees there, both in the middle of the garden. We sometimes think the tree of knowledge is somewhere else and the tree of life, but they're both right there in the middle of the garden. And so it's a tale of two trees, as some people put it. Which one are they going to choose? Are they going to continue in this oneness with God or are they going to go to the other tree? and undo the oneness with God that they are experiencing. It goes on, it says, Jehovah God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it, and he commanded the man, saying, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A lot more consequential, or a lot heavier consequences than my dog jumping in the cool waters after my wife. Yeah, she could have died in that, but she didn't. But here it's a clear pronouncement. If you disobey, you will find yourself separated from the life giver. And notice the word took. Same idea what I was describing. There I was at Milo Academy. I'm getting ready to, to be married or take a wife, right? Same word here in the Hebrews. This idea of God is looking forward to taking the man, almost like somebody would lovingly take a spouse and show them, this is what I made for you and put him in the garden of delight, or Eden. Put him. Get over there. Work, right? I got a job for you to do, son. Get over there and work that garden. No, it's actually this idea of taking, gently showing, and then putting, rest, getting him there means to rest. So the garden wasn't seen to be a place of toil, per se, though there would be work to be done. It was a place of fellowship, place of oneness, a place of rest. How is it with you and God? When you come to Him, is it a place where you find rest? When you come to your home, when you settle down there at the end of a day or, or maybe even the beginning and things are still, does that peaceful feeling overcome you? Does that feeling continue through the rest of the day? Is that home a place of rest and of comfort and of refuge? And we know there's nothing to take refuge from at this point, but nonetheless, that's what he's saying. He's, he's taking them, lovingly showing them, here's the, here, here's the garden, and this is a place for you to relax. When you truly have a friendship with somebody, you can relax around them. You don't have to put up the guards and the masks and all of that. But unfortunately, we live in a society with so many masks that we don't even understand what it means to rest in a friendship. But that's exactly what they had back then a delightful place to settle down and to rest. You say, well, that's kind of far-fetched, Pastor. Well, look at this then. Don't take my word for it. Modern King James says it kind of like what I already quoted it to you. 
This one, the Jewish Publication Society says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. Yeah, get to work. Then the Brenton Septuagint says, the Lord God took the man whom he had formed and placed him in the Garden of Delight. Okay, there's a delight there, to cultivate and keep it. All right, now go over to Young's Literal. Jehovah God taketh the man, causeth him to rest. That's more like what the Hebrews are collecting. Rest in the Garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. And so if you throw all those together, it says something like this. Jehovah God takes the man, causes him to rest in the garden of pleasure, to serve it and to keep it. Was it a drudgery? Was it like going out there and trying to pull all those weeds away from my strawberry plants? No. It's not that at all. Is it like going out there with my grub hoe and having to dig this three-foot hole that feels like it's never going to get dug? I mean, come on, I've got to get these trees planted. No, it's a garden of delight. None of that. A home that's been prepared for them. Perfect place. Perfect oneness. Just like a husband showing the bride her new home. Yeah, honey, here's the silverware. It's not much, but it's our place, right? Does it matter really what you got in a home as far as things? It's who you have in the home, right? It's who you have in a relationship with you that really makes the difference. All those other things are just mere flattery and everything. Who cares if you've got the fancy china and the, the real silver-plated silverware? Never seen that anyway myself. I, I got, somebody gave me a thing of china, and, and my silverware has always been the kind that seems like it looks old after you use it once. But nonetheless, at my house, it's a place of rest. But yet, where's the bride then? He, Adam's being shown. You could say, well, he represents the human race, God's bride, and so yeah, he's showing him. But it leaves, if you're in an oral tradition, it leaves you wondering in the story, okay, where's the woman at? We all know there's women in the world because here we are out in the middle of the desert with Moses, right? And so if you were there listening to the story, the natural question would be, where's the bride at? Well, Jehovah God, before he provides the bride, he commands the man saying, you may eat of the tree, of every tree in the garden. But you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He commands him. Is he going to listen to that command? We know the story ourselves. If they're sitting there with Moses in the desert hearing the story, they know the answer to the story. But notice it says, God commands him, saying. We're not told everything that God ever conversed with Adam and Eve about. But it's very clear. Moses is very clear. He knew about this. And there could have been other things that he known as well. Was he told about an enemy? We're not told from the text, but it, it kind of leaves it open there. If he's walking with them in the cool of the day, there, sh there surely are some conversations taking place. If I knew that somebody was going to undo my marriage or try to somehow undo something that I valued, I'd be willing to listen to the one who knew that information. Right? God knew. He knew all of this. He's talking to Adam. He's warning him. A natural question would be, what is evil? You know, if I heard this for the first time, he'd be like, well, what is that? Is there somebody? Well, last, a couple of sermons ago, we talked about how Jesus desired oneness, but yet there's the evil one, and that means a diseased one. If there's a disease, God surely let him know about it. And I'm not the only one who believes that. Here we find spiritual gifts. A little book I have in my office shelf in there. Since I saw that the holy angels often visited the garden, gave instructions to Adam and Eve concerning their employment, and also taught them concerning the rebellion of Satan and his fall. So not only is God talking in, in the language there, but he's actually got in, individuals 
They're on his side talking as well. The angels warn them of Satan, caution them not to separate from each other. Keep that oneness strong. For they might be brought in contact with this fallen foe. The angels enjoined upon them to closely follow the directions that God had given them. For in perfect obedience only were they safe. And if they were obedient, this fallen foe could have no power over them. Don't go focusing on perfection here. That's not my point in the sermon this morning here. But the point is this. If they would have maintained oneness with each other and oneness with God, would they have fallen? No. So evil is the undoing of oneness. It doesn't matter what form it takes. That is evil. And we see all kinds of symptoms of it. Because here we find in verse 18, Jehovah God said, it's not good that man should be alone. That was never his intention. This idea is man should be a limb to himself. Think about a fruit tree growing up, right? It grows up, you know, and it just sprouts off one limb. It's not good for man to ha- just be hanging out there by himself alone. It's not natural. No fruit tree just has one branch off of it, and neither does a human race just a branch unto itself. We're connected to God, and we're connected to each other. Alone literally means, in the Hebrew, a limb or a branch. Uh, just this sole branch sitting out there by themselves. It's not good for us to be that way. That's why we desire companionship. That's why we desire friendships. Now we'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground Jehovah formed every animal of the field. He's reiterating here that not only was Adam formed, but God formed the animals. There I was yesterday. Was that just yesterday, Maria, that chicken died? And there I was, something happened in the garage, I think, you know, one of the little ones must have gotten hold of one of our chickens, and so it's dangling there, and it's having a hard time breathing, and, and it dies, and there I am out there in the dirt digging a hole, and I hold this little thing there, and I think to myself, Lord, you know, are you feeling what I'm feeling? These creatures are special. Look at the beautiful feathers on this thing. And if it would have come, become a full-grown chicken, it would have laid, yeah, laid eggs and all of that, but it would have been just a beautiful bird. And Lord, this is not your will for our world. Not only are we special in God's sight, but that same feeling I had for that little chicken that some people think are inconsequential, that is what he has for all of creation. It's all special. And these animals start being brought to Adam. Who else do we find in the Bible the animals are brought to him? Look at Noah, Right? That's why Noah's story is really almost like another creation story where God has to start over again. And here Adam is, before the fall, the animals are brought right to him. God brings the animals to him, calls them their names. And, of course, as he gave the names to all the cattle and birds of the air, he realizes there was not found a helper for him. So he goes to sleep takes one of his ribs, which in the Hebrew is the timber. So here he is. He's a limb to himself, right? And God takes a, takes a rib out of him, which means timber. And so now there's going to be two branches in the human race, right? There's going to be man, there's going to be woman. If you're a Hebrew, listening to this story in the wilderness, you'd remember that because it's a play on words. Adam's a lone branch, but out of him is going to come another branch, right? He's gonna, this timber is going to be used and be, full, be made into a, another branch, if you will, and they're going to be united to God. And not only that, they're going to have children, another branch, right? 
and he closes up the flesh like a master surgeon. Because now he's got some building material, doesn't he? But a helper. You think, okay, that's the slave I have at my house. She's got to cook all the meals, and she's got to do all these different things for me, right? No, it's actually this idea of somebody who is, who is uh, inseparably united with you. It's a oneness language. And yes, compliments, you know, we talk about opposites attract and how males and females compliment one another, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It's an inseparableness. As they're united with God, they're united with each other. Inseparable unity. That's the kind of helper we have talk- we're talking about here. But what happens if Satan gets her off alone? Well, we have a problem that comes up. Jehovah God made, built the rib, so he takes that rib, builds, and it's, it is architectural language there, builds the rib, builds this woman on the rib, he brings her to the man, and he says, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall the man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, inseparable unity. And yeah, I've heard all kinds of sermons about leaving and cleaving, right? You got you got to have your own household there. That's what I was doing at Milo Academy. It's just making my own household. Leave and cleave. And it says they shall be one flesh. If that's not inseparable unity, then I don't know what is. And we're not just talking about what society focuses on when you think of one flesh. We're talking about oneness, completeness. And that's why he uses man and woman, ish and isha. So close together. Even in words but more so in heart. Human oneness established there at creation. Is it still around today? Do we still have human oneness? It's just evidence that that's what the Creator established at the beginning. And it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And some people like to giggle at that and think about that and everything. But you know what? It's really a term that means smooth. It's almost like you're done working with a piece of wood, and, it's, and there it is in perfect form. Nothing to, 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 to get a sliver on. Nothing that's going to be there. It's smooth. It's bare from the master's hand. And it was very good from the master's hand. And why were they clothed in light? We read quotations about that. But all you got to do is read Genesis chapter 1 to see why. God himself said, let there be light, and there is light. And so if he can say, let there be light, and there's light, and Moses, when he sees God, is shining with light, then what's it going to be like to walk with this being of light day after day? To even be in his presence for a day, what are you going to be clothed in? Light. Just like Moses left his presence, and there he was shining with light, so he had to put a veil over his face. Imagine seeing God face to face, walking with him to cool the day. You'd have a clothing of light over you. And so truly they loved the Lord their God with all their hearts. And they had perfect oneness with their neighbor because they loved their neighbor as themselves. Beautiful communion, wonderful way to think about oneness, if it would continue. But it's so absurd when you hear the story, you think, why didn't they continue that? And now we're going to begin to diagnose our own issues. Because FBI agents, here's your scripture to write down. (coughs) And I'll look it up. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And you're going to notice the progression of her language. She goes from we to you. And I'm going to make a case that when we go do that in our relationships, when we go from we to you, you, what dynamics change in that kind of relationship when you're pointing the finger versus saying we're in this together? You know what changes. Fights usually happen. And so we find here, God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's one thing when God's giving a command, it's perfect, it's done in the perfect way. He's saying, don't do this, you don't do this. But when we start pointing the finger, it's not so good. Look here, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She adds, of course, we know that. But what's behind that adding? In her mind, there's a switch, of course. Something must have happened behind the scenes. Something must have been going on in her mind. And the serpent capitalizes. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God, no, the bad guy, knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a counterfeit oneness. There is Satan over by, you know, in the tree there as a serpent, and he's offering something, is he not? He's saying that you can know the prerogatives of God. You can know the motives of God. You can be as God. And so Satan was able to get her to insinuate and try to judge the motives of God. Well, I can't even touch it, right? God never said that. We think of, yeah, he added to her words, to, his, to God's word. She added to his words, but that's not the evil here. The evil is that oneness is being undone. Satan is baiting her. She's insinuating. And as she insinuates, she gives room to the devil. Does she not? Yeah, I can't even touch it. There's something behind that statement. She betrays God. And today, we do the same thing. Do you know everything about God? Do I? No. None of us do. Deuteronomy 29 is clear. There's some secret things of God we just don't even know. And so for me to come along, and even as a group of believers, we are still figuring things out. And somebody comes and says, you know, here's something I, uh, the Lord said. I'm going to say, really, can you show me? Can you show me? Because if the Lord said it, then I should be able to find it there in the revealed word, especially if you're quoting the word of God and you say it's in there. I should be able to find it. Otherwise, maybe you're insinuating something about God. Maybe you have a picture, of, or I have a picture of God that's not accurate. So how do I know? We don't know the heart of God, do we? Just admit it. We don't know it. We don't know everything there is to know about God. And we come with new light or something like that, then we need to be willing to compare it to fellow believers and compare it to the word of God and say, you know, I really don't know everything. It's a humbleness. But what about if we started making judgments on people of God? What if we started insinuating about people in the church? Aren't we made in the image of God? And so I get busy, right? And I walk by you. I'm going to use me as an example because 
You know, you can all shoot darts at me. That's fine. If you shoot darts at me, just remember, I have a rear guard, and his name is Jesus. So if you shoot darts at him, I'd hate to face him in battle, okay? But anyway, so there I am. I walk by you. I'm, too, I'm, I'm busy, right? And I, I have to go from one thing to another. And then you assume that I'm so walking past you so fast because I don't like you. And you begin to dwell on that. And then next thing you know, you, you notice something else negative about me because you're so hyper on that one thing. And then you get become sensitive about that thing and then you're sensitive about another thing. And next thing you know, I'm the worst pastor in the world. All because I had to use the restroom before I went on the platform. <laughs> or, or I had just gone from one service to another and I knew I had to get the laptop up here or I had to get this done in the back and, I'm, and I, I tried to tell you, hey, if you want to talk, walk with me. Right? But, could an insinuation be made about me through a simple, innocent act? Who would really know my heart? I knew why I made that decision. Who else would know that? Right? God? So if you start insinuating, you are putting yourself in the place of God. You are antichrist, and so am I if I do that. That's a terrible place to be. Because didn't David say one time, it was said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God does what? Looks on the heart. So if that's the case, if I can insinuate and somehow take on the prerogative of God, I've done the same thing that happened there in the garden. But furthermore, I want to put it out there that it could be that insinuation is a form of counterfeit prayer. How could it be counterfeit prayer? Well, I know for sure that there are Satanists and things like that because I have pastors who've come out of that and become Seventh-day Adventist ministers and they're really strong in the truth and they tell me that we are prayed against. But you're not praying against anybody here, are you? No, but insinuation is a form of that. Let me explain. Think about it. If, she, if, if Satan could get Eve to insinuate about God and take a step back from him, right, and start separating, then he has room to move, does he not? He has room to, to take her another step away and all of that. And to eventually he listens only to, she listens only to him. And the same thing can happen to us. We can insinuate. It gives Satan room to work. And then once he has room to work, then he, he begins to act. And as he begins to act, and we give him more room to work, he begins to control. He begins to control and then you have no more oneness in your church. You've in essence answered his prayer. Insinuation is a form of counterfeit prayer. And it comes to us today. And how, if you don't like my saying that, well, here it is. Satan well knows that all whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his, excuse me, his attacks. Therefore, he invents every possible device to engross the mind. There has ever been a class professing godliness who instead of following on to know the truth, make it their religion to seek some fault of character or error of faith in those with whom they do not agree. We've got disagreements, don't we? Could we get to be like that? Such are Satan's right-hand helpers. Accusers of the brethren are not few, and they are always active when? When God is at work. God is planning something here in Anderson. It's clear. Not because I'm here, but because you're here. You've been here. The work is still moving forward here. Yeah, I'm coming to be a part of that. But he's at work here. And so we can then expect secret agents 
not FBI agents, faithful Bible investigator agents, but ones that, that come and maybe don't even know it, but they are agents. They're God's, Satan's right-hand helper. They will put a false coloring upon the words and acts of those who love and obey the truth. They will represent the most earnest, zealous, self-denying servants as deceived or deceivers. It is their work to misrepresent the motives. Oh, there it is. It's an insinuation, isn't it? Misrepresent the motives of every true and noble deed to circulate insinuations. Hmm. And arouse suspicion in the minds of the inexperienced. Take aside those who are weakest. In every conceivable manner, they will seek to cause that which is pure and righteous to be regarded as foul and deceptive. They make what is wrong look what? Right, and what is right look wrong. But none need be deceived. It may be readily seen whose children they are. Remember, there's a promised seed and there's the seed of Satan. Whose example they follow and whose work they do. You shall know them by their fruits. Their course resembles that of Satan. They envenom slander the envenom slander, the accuser of our brethren. The great deceiver has many agents ready to present any and every kind of error to ensnare souls. Heresies prepared to suit the varied tastes and capacities of those whom he would ruin. It is his plan to bring into the church insincere, unregenerate elements that will encourage doubt and unbelief and hinder all who desire to see the work of God advance and to advance with it. Many who have no real faith in God or in his word assent to some principles of truth and pass as Christians, and thus they are enabled to introduce their errors as scriptural doctrines. Boy, you all need to read that again. Great controversy, and I need to read it again because I read it a couple times, one at Hayfork, one at Weaverville, when we did our study of the Great Controversy. But as I read that, I listed it. They neglect prayer and Bible study. They engross their mind in all kinds of other things. They are fault finders with those who disagree with them especially, they insinuate, become agents to spread the error, and what happens? They hinder the work. And I say they. I say they. Look in the mirror, Murray. Take a good look in the mirror. Tell me, do you like what you see? And you can do the same. We have no room for insinuation here. If you come to me and you start talking to me about one of your fellow brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you one simple question. Have you talked to them? If you haven't, I'm going to kindly just encourage you to do that. Because if you don't have oneness with them, and you haven't followed Matthew 18, where you talk to them, and then you take two or three with you, and you have them witness between you, and then eventually you come to me as the chair of the board, if you jump to come to me as the chair of the board about somebody, I'm assuming that you've already gone through all of those chains. I'm assuming as a Christian you've done that. And if you have not, a red flag comes up in my mind. I say, wait a minute. I don't want to encourage them in their behavior. I want to help them do what Jesus has asked them to do. And so this does happen today. And I will direct you back to the person you have a fault with. And I will encourage you to pray with that person and to work it out with that person and to not insinuate and think you know what's going on in their heart, because you don't know, and neither do I. And so these are the snares of Satan in the great controversy. Satan says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He does the same thing. He puts the fruit there in front of us and says, yes, you can know their hearts. You can know their motives. You don't. That's the truth of it. You don't know their, anybody else's motive but your own. And so notice his emphasis on 
He has his own commandment, his own way of looking. You can know good and evil. And so what's the issue? Trusting God or being God. I choose to trust God and say, you know what? I trust you know these people right here better than I do. You know my heart. I'm not going to go around judging everybody, insinuating. I don't want that fruit. That fruit tastes good going down, but it's bitter in the belly. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make her wise, she took of it, ate, gives it to Adam eventually, we find, and a separation occurs. One that will take the crucifixion, the death of the Savior, to undo. That is really the enormity of us undoing oneness in our homes, in our church, in our society that it will crucify Christ in you. And so evil, simply put, is the undoing of oneness. And it says, now they knew that they were naked. Why? Because they're not near the author of light anymore, are they? And it says, Adam and his wife hid themselves in the middle of the trees of the garden. You know, if they're right there in the middle of all, they can see the two trees again, can't they? They know what decision they've made. And guess who comes looking for them? God comes looking for them. Cries out, where are you? God knows exactly where they are. And confronts them. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And we know the blame game. It continues, right? That shows you that the relationships are, are broken when the blame game begins. And the consequences come. They lost sight of their creator. Everything needed for life was marred. Perfect relationships were marred. The care of the world that they were given, now they have given it over to Satan and we find all kinds of strange things happen. But not only that, the voice of God walking with him in the cool of the day. They were not given that privilege face to face anymore. And warfare resulted. Warfare that's going to cost the life of one individual. He will bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of Jesus, this warfare enmity would continue between the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Satan has his offspring right here, your seed and her seed. She has offspring. And notice it goes into the singular. He, that's the promised seed, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent's going to have dust for food, yes. Eve's going to have pain in childbirth. Adam's going to have difficulty working the plants that he named. But the most costly consequence is that one will have to die. One would be wounded to restore oneness. So evil is the undoing of oneness. They listened to insinuations about God. They disobeyed. They turned on each other. The world around them was harmed. It was revealed that their action would cost the creator his life. They'd have effectively caused the first divorce. They divorced themselves from God. And so he, evil is the undoing of oneness. Broken, shattered lives result ever since that time because of those decisions. And broken, shattered lives still continue today because we're making the same decisions today. Hopefully, we're focusing on not the fact that we've messed up, but on the fact that just like Adam and them could have grown older right there at the gate, Every year that went by, every sacrifice that was sacrificed, every altar experience, pointing them forward to the one who could restore it. 
Can God restore a marriage? Yes. Can God restore unity in a group? Yes. In a church? Yes. In a society? Yes. Jesus is the promised restorer. But we must look to him, focus on him, rather than everybody else around us. So someday soon, he's going to come, take us to the place prepared for all of us who desire oneness with him. He's the one. Though he saw oneness being undone, evil resulting, he's the one who comes to restore it all. So today we're going to sing a song as we close this service. Whatever area of your life this applies to, recognize Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who restores. Look in the mirror for yourself and say, Lord, is there any evil undoing of oneness in me? If so, cleanse me with Jesus' blood. If you'd like to stand, feel free. We have heard a joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the gladness all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. There the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward is our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Wafted on the rolling tide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, tell to sinners far and wide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, sing ye islands of the sea, echo back ye ocean caves, her shall keep her jubilee. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Above the battle strife, Jesus saves, Jesus saves by his death and endless life. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, sing it softly through the gloom. When the heart for mercy craves, sing and triumph for the tomb. Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Triumph, salvation, full and free. Highest hills and deepest caves. This our song. Of victory, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this simple definition. The evil is the undoing of oneness. Guide us in our homes, guide us here in our church family, guide us in the greater world around us to point people to the one who saves, the promised restorer, the one who can undo evil.
bring about true unity, true oneness. Lord, help us to trust him fully with our lives today. Jesus, we're thankful that you save us. We're thankful that you died for us. Help us to call on you. Help us to look in the mirror and see that we need your saving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.